0: Welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. There has been a lot of commercial space activity in China over the last five years, especially with the rise of several new space companies. I hear that there are about 100 new space companies in China that have started over the last five to seven years. There has also been a lot of speculation on the value of the investments that these companies have raised, and some numbers put it beyond $3 billion. Given that Chinese space sector is ruled by the government, much like India, where the Chinese government controls most of the activity that is in either building launch vehicles, satellites or providing services, and only some part of it is run by private sector players who are providing some very niche services, I thought there's a lot of similarities between what is happening in China and in India. But there's also a sense of fear of missing out by thinking that the Chinese are way ahead of us trying to kick off new space in India. To get clarity in all of this, I am talking to Irina Louie and Bhavya Lal, who are researchers at the Institute of Defense Analysis, Science and Technology Policy Institute, based in Washington, D.C. Irina and Bhavya, along with her colleagues, conducted an extensive study to map the Chinese commercial space sector, and especially new space, by looking at original documents in Mandarin and also visiting China and many of the companies to understand the status on the ground. This is a two-hour long episode that is packed with several insights that are fascinating. The full report produced by the IDA, Stippy is available in the show notes, which you can access. And download the report for free. I hope that this episode clarifies the understanding of the Chinese new space sector against that of India and maybe the listeners can take a lot away from this comparison as to what we can do better for new space in India. Bhavya and uh, Irina, welcome to this episode of the New Space uh, India podcast. You know, having read your report on on China, I was very excited to have this conversation with you and uh, I look forward to learning a lot from this episode.
1: Hi Narayan, we are excited to be here ourselves. We look forward to talking about our report and anything else you'd like to talk about.
0: Okay, let's uh, actually begin this conversation by learning more about what is the organization you work for and, uh, you know, where, where you're located.
1: Sure, so Irina and I work at the Ida Science and Technology Policy Institute, which is a federally funded research and development center that was that was created by the United States Congress to support the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. We are located in washington d c uh, in fact right across from the White House itself um, uh, or which is what we call ourselves, provides objective and data driven insights into to sponsors in the executive branch of the US government. In recent years, we have explored global trends in several subsectors of space. We looked at global trends in space, generally across the board and the world. Subsequent to the overarching trends report, we wrote one diving into global trends in the small satellite sector. We examined global trends in SSA and STM, and we recently completed a report on global trends in on-orbit servicing assembly and manufacturing. And of course, we evaluated the Chinese commercial space sector, and we are excited to talk about our work today.
0: Irina, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, uh, what's your background? And, uh, and then maybe Bhavya can talk about her profile and her experience and expertise.
2: Um, that sounds great. So I grew up in the United States uh, with Chinese parents, so speaking Chinese. And then I studied environmental science and then political science in Sciences Po in France and then Columbia University in New York. Um, I currently work as a science policy fellow at STIPI, where I've worked on many China S&T related projects. And on the China Commercial Space Project, I was able to use a lot of my native Mandarin skills to conduct primary research and interviews.
1: So um, unlike Irina, I actually grew up in Delhi in India, and I came to the United States to study nuclear engineering at MIT. And that was actually 35 years ago, years ago believe it or not. Um, After studying engineering at undergraduate and graduate levels, I felt that if I want to make the world a better place, the levers are in the world of policymakers. So I did a PhD in public policy and public administration. Um, I first started to work at a policy research and consulting firm called Apt Associates in Cambridge, Massachusetts, very near where MIT was. Uh, First, I was an analyst there and ultimately the director of its Center for Science and Technology Policy Studies. Uh, After that, I was the president of c Steps LLC, which is a science and technology policy research and consulting firm, also in the Boston area. And of course, as I said earlier, now I work at the Science and Technology Policy Institute. Uh, Throughout my career, I have focused on providing non-advocacy-based, unbiased, data-driven advice to ST agencies, including now NASA and other space-oriented agencies.
0: Yeah, you have, uh, you know, a prolific team, I guess, uh, doing uh, this research. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that really helped you guys uh, quite a lot. Um, So with respect to, you know, the China study that you guys did, you extensively mapped out uh, the new space happenings in China and how, you know, it goes along with the other legacy space program and, you know, compares that with uh, what what may be the future and so on. Uh, So what was the, motivation behind this uh, project and uh, was it because that we hear a lot of news about Chinese uh, new space and, and then there's a lot of clutter in, in understanding it and is, was it primarily intending to declutter a lot of these issues?
1: So Narayan, that's exactly right. So in, 19, in, in late 2018, we started this project to look at the emerging commercial space sector in China and, and exactly as you said, it was motivated by the fact that there is lack of reliable data on commercial space activities in China and a lot of hype. So, you know, if you look at some of the, you know, the recent media uh, coverage, uh, you know, there's a Bloomberg News article that says China is spending $8 billion to build a fledgling commercial industry focused on sending small payloads into orbit um, with the title China's space program is coming for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And, you know, it's um, obviously China is not spending $8 billion just on the commercial, the fledgling commercial industry. Uh, Another article noted, um, you know, Chinese startups are already undercutting U.S. pricing by 80 percent. There are no Chinese companies that have, you know, any significant number of international customers. So they are certainly not cutting uh, U.S. entities by already cutting U.S. pricing by 80 percent. Another article noted that um, 2018 alone, the Chinese commercial space industry received new investment totaling $2 billion. And if you look at the source from where that number was coming from that was not even funding for commercial space companies in China, but sort of global Chinese global investment in commercial space. So there's a lot of misinformation and we thought it would be useful to do a deep dive and get some real data. And of course, we felt that the best way to do it would be to look at policy documents in the original Chinese. Um, It would make it make sense to look at um uh, you know documents coming out of decision making bodies in China, not just academic and other uh other other academy type uh, uh, institutions and also it was pretty important that we visit some of these companies and learn about them firsthand. So we made sure that our team included Chinese speakers like Irina uh, and we also had the team also included economists and aerospace engineers. We wanted to make sure we were well rounded in terms of understanding what was happening. Uh, we conducted field interviews with more than 20 Chinese companies, spoke to more than 40 experts. Uh, we we attended conferences such as a commercial space conference in Wuhan and uh, the International Astronautics Conference in, in Bremen, which, of course, as you know, has many Chinese um, attendees and, and, and companies. We mined Chinese uh, co- uh, company websites and WeChat handles. We looked at financial information services like Chichacha, the, the Chinese version of it. Uh, We looked at other Chinese government business statistical databases. We also looked at uh, news sources, uh, Xinhua and CCTV in China, uh, and other important websites. And again, I hope your your audience will read a report and get some of the details. Uh, We tried to address three questions in our study. What are the factors driving the development of China's emerging commercial space sector? What are the key characteristics of this sector? And what are its strengths and weaknesses and where do we expect Chinese commercial companies to be going in the next five to 10 years?
0: Awesome. That's, uh, that's actually a very extensive uh, piece of uh, background. And, and, you know, you had a lot of time and resources as well uh, to map this out, if not extremely extensively, but at least uh, to give, uh, you know, an overview level uh, estimation in the beginning. So one of the interesting points that you mentioned is, you know, this uh, signaling of, from the media. Of you know estimates of Chinese uh, companies being uh, having so much investment or uh, having uh, done certain activities or or undercutting US or other markets, right? So, what would be your reason to say that, that there's a lot of clutter and the way that people perceive activity in in China grossly reflects differently in 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 mainstream media?
1: So, are you asking what, why, why is it why is that the case? Why is there some level of...
0: Yeah, why is it that we don't really see a lot of ground truth reflected in uh, mainstream media or even you know space-related uh, you know media very accurately?
1: So that's a great question. I mean, obviously, it's not something we actually uh, formally studied in our study. But if I had to make a guess, I mean, I think um, sensationalization sells. I mean, it, it's a much better headline to say Chinese companies, Chinese space program is coming for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. That's just way more interesting than saying... You know, China spends you know six hundred to nine hundred billion million dollars annually, that sort of thing. So I think it's it's just um, you know headlines, and also there is a general sense that that China is developing very fast, and and it, it is it is it is developing quite fast, especially in the space sector. So um, there's a lot of interest in in Chinese activity. Um, but it's just really hard to get really good information, partly because the Chinese government doesn't really give out a whole lot of it. So you have to work very hard to get it. Um, you know, need, you need to be a native English, uh, Chinese language speaker to be able to understand most of it. And I think that's where, um, that's where most people kind of, uh, are unable to, to get to the reality.
0: Right. One of the you know, news that uh, I read uh, is was that in 2014, the Chinese government really opened up this sector to private actors, uh, you know, to have this new space activity go on. So, you know, from what I understand, at least, you know, my understanding of the Chinese space program is not so extensive. So, from what I understand uh, so far, the Chinese government has been doing most of the activity for the last 50 or 60 years, and I don't really know how much. The industry is involved. I know that maybe the state owns some uh, some industries which do the activities, but not really like private uh, sector in you know doing a lot of the activity. So can you briefly talk about what is new space in China? How did it uh, begin? What was its roots? Uh, you know what was the background of the actors and uh, you know what is the legacy of these uh, traditional actors?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. Um... And you're totally right that the government has done all, all the activity for the past 50 or 60 years, except for the past five years, I would say. Um, and your previous podcast episode about the foundations of China's space industry is really great because it kind of lays out the three main traditional actors, which is the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation or CASC, C-A-S-C. Um, the China Aerospace Science and Industry Cooperation, uh, CASIC, C-A-S-I-C, and then the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So these three um, institutions have basically completed all of the government space projects, um, all of the famous ones that we know of, um, launched all of the satellites. They, you know, they've been responsible for everything. And then um, starting in around 2014, we see the first wave of new space companies coming in, Um, and then we see a much larger second wave of companies in 2016 and then others in 2018. And these companies are different from the traditional um, state-owned enterprises and institutions because they're really focused on commercial activities. They're focused on making money and finding non-governmental customers, which is the difference between them and I would say the other institutions. Um, the background of these startups is that a lot of qualified aerospace engineers who actually have experience working at, in the state-owned, uh, space industry, um, decided to leave and, you know, really take entrepreneurship into their own hands and start their own companies. Um, and you do talk about how there was a policy change in 2014. Um, and a lot of media sites and politicians talk about document 60, which is the policy change as the, you know, the opening up of the commercial space industry. But when we talk to companies about why they were motivated to, you know, start their own space companies in China, that the in, where the industry is completely dominated by SOEs, they actually said that, you know, they were just bored and tired of the work they were doing for these SOEs. And they wanted to do more, you know, more creative things. They wanted to do their own business activities, do their own projects without all of the red tape and the bureaucracy. And a lot of it was inspired by the success of Western space startups, such as SpaceX and Blue Origin and all of those space companies that we see in the headlines all the time. So Document 60 didn't actually have a large influence on why these founders wanted to start their companies, but it definitely gave support and credibility to these new space actors afterwards, especially when they were looking for venture capital and investment, they could say that, yes, the government has this policy out that allows for private investment in the space industry, which effectively opens up their industry. The other thing about China's new space industry that is a little bit different is that the traditional SOEs also have spinoffs that participate in the new space world. So for example, there's Xspace, which is a spinoff of Casic that actually focuses specifically on commercial launches. So they don't provide any launches um, for big government clients. And their goal is to focus on commercial launches for commercial payloads, basically.
1: So I want to underscore Narayan, this last point that uh, Irina made about commercial, what sort of what makes a commercial company. And that was one of our biggest challenge Uh, in the United States or in the Western world, it's pretty clear what commercial is. Uh, but in China, it's basically an entity, it's an enterprise that is operated in pursuit of profit as distinct from an organization that focuses on public policy goals, which is more of a characteristic of a state-owned enterprise or an SOE. Um, and of course, uh, you know, as the example of X space shows, this definition can include companies that are fully state-owned. So when we had to dis- determine if a company was commercial or not, we had three rough criteria. Um, the first one was companies in which some private parties have taken risk either through ownership or investment or other means, even if the majority stakeholder is an SOE. So Changguang Satellite Company would be an example of of that uh, such a company. The second criterion was that the company has sold their products to customers or or would like to sell their products to customers other than the Chinese government in domestic or foreign markets. So an example of that would be Minospace or spacity. And the third one is the is the company that um is a category that Irina mentioned that even if it's a state owned company, it demonstrates some level of independence from its parent, SOE, or government agency. Um and so sort of using that rough set of criteria, we had about eighty companies that we considered commercial.
0: Right, it's an extensive map. I did see that you guys uh, made a list of the companies, uh, you know, may available on the on the report itself, which by itself is quite interesting because uh, I don't think so anybody's published such uh, extensive listing uh, that is, you know, available on the internet so far. At least I haven't seen it and uh, and essentially you know what is uh, the growth that uh, you've seen or you know you've able to study in the last few years because we talked about this brief period of the last uh, 5 years or so so uh, how many how many companies have been added uh, you know in the last uh, 5 years or has there been a lot of uh, mushrooming recently uh, what has been like the growth trajectory of these uh, companies and uh, are they spread between upstream and downstream? Are there? I see a lot of uh, companies trying to uh, make rockets and be the next, uh, you know, SpaceX, but are there enough companies also, you know, trying to build like satellites and, you know, also are there matching companies that also are in the downstream which can absorb all these upstream activity?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. So, I mean, X-Space was established in 2013. Um, and it was the only, you know, commercial space company to be established in 2013. And then you have three companies in 2014. And then when we did our study, which, you know, we ended our data collection in March of 2019, there were we identified 78 companies. And we know we didn't identify all of the companies we identified the major ones, but there are definitely some Other companies that are, you know, PowerPoint companies or just started that might not have a product yet, but that want to get engaged in this um, commercial space industry. You know, in 2020, you might have over a hundred companies at this point right now. And you definitely see how just it took off because there was just a lot of venture capital available for the commercial space industry, especially in, you know, the 2015, 2016 timeline. And then we can talk about investment later, but there was a lot in launch and then you see a lot also in satellite manufacturing. So if you read our report, um, most of the companies are involved in either launch or satellite manufacturing as, you know, and that makes sense because it's like you need the hardware, you need the equipment first before you're able to get the data, before you're able to get the products. Um, so everyone focused on, you know, testing a CubeSat or like launching a CubeSat um, to show off their technological capabilities And in the beginning, because there were no other commercial space actors in China, a company had to do every single type of work in all of the sectors. So they would have to be involved in upstream and downstream um, sectors. They would have to, you know, make their own hardware, operate their own satellites, you know, collect their data and provide downstream products. So a lot of them talked about vertical integration. However, as you see this industry maturing, you see that certain companies are specializing in specific sectors um, this is really the case for the grounds segment and grounds operations sector, where in the beginning, you know, all of these companies were doing their own grounds operations and figuring that out themselves. But now you have specific companies that are creating grounds equipment and ground control centers just so that they can target these other satellite companies who are potentially launching satellites. Um, and then, you know, need to operate them and outsourcing the grounds communications to the grounds operations companies. And then in terms of downstream, I would say the downstream is probably the newest and the most immature of all the sectors right now, but it also has the most potential because that's where you get um other industries that are not engaged in space right now. They can be brought into the space industry, for example, like the agricultural industry, um, a lot of satellite companies or remote sensing companies are trying to target the agricultural industry so that they can optimize, you know, the agricultural um, when to plant their seeds, um, when to water and all of those things. Um, but we when we talk to those companies, they emphasize the need for new downstream actors. They emphasized how right now they're building all this hardware and they have a lot of manufacturing capabilities, but they're not sure where that's going to go and who their customers are going to be because they're not there isn't a huge downstream industry for space right now in China.
0: Right that's uh, something that I imagined as well because I guess you know this parallels a lot with uh, what is going on in India as well. It only I think recently we see also in India a lot of this kind of downstream activity that is picking up and a lot of us upstream actors you know firstly being established. So there are nice uh, some of the nice parallels uh, there as well. Um uh, so from the perspective of the new space actors that are uh, you know up and coming in china uh, you know what do you think that uh, is the most likely nature of the outcomes of uh, scaling up for some of these companies so for example you know let's say uh, these companies for example uh, uh, will generate these satellites and these rocket companies will fly the chinese made satellites and the downstream chinese companies will use the capacity created by new space actors in China to service the domestic market? Or is this something of, what I'm trying to understand is, is this a, a largely domestic play where they say that the domestic market is really big for us to capture? And we don't really care about the, the Western world or uh, markets outside of China at the moment? Or, you know, is this something where uh, they're saying, we don't really know if there is a market for us here in China, but we'll create the capacity to then, you know, sell this abroad?
2: Right. So this is a great question. And this is definitely like one of the major things we wanted to figure out by interviewing companies is where do they expect their business to be and where do they want to scale up? Um, when we talked to all of the new space companies, they were focused right now on the domestic commercial space market because it's so new, because they are quite unestablished in the global environment. They feel like they need to establish themselves in the domestic market first before they start tar- targeting international, um, customers. And you see this across other emerging, um, you know, technology industries in China where they establish themselves domestically first before they go to international business activities. Um, one, you know, a few companies kind of noted that their technology cannot compete with international competitors right now. And so they're only focused on domestic stuff in order to make sure that their technology you know, gets better and they're working on, you know, new capabilities that they can focus on domestically before putting it abroad. But in the long term, and you see this kind of with some of the more established um space companies, such as um Changuang satellite, you know, Head Aerospace, um, and even Minospace, where they are um targeting developing countries as their you know foreign customers, um, especially those in the Belt and Road Initiative and those that would be more welcoming of Chinese um companies and Chinese business activities um, instead of the Western countries. Because they know that their technology and their brand image would not allow them to enter the Western um, commercial space markets um, and that they wouldn't be able to compete against, you know, a SpaceX or something like that right now. So they're starting with, you know, the low hanging fruit, which is the developing countries, countries that don't have any, you know, any commercial space industry or maybe any space industry and providing space assets and space products to those countries first um, before. They even think about other things. But that is maybe their future for the next five years. Their future, when we interviewed them so last year, was really still focused on the domestic space market.
1: And also, even when they looked at other countries, I mean, they weren't looking, you know, they weren't trying to launch large communication satellites for the governments of these countries, right? I mean, that's something that, that you know, the Great Wall Corporation does. They were looking more at universities that launch small uh, QTATs. So they're they are starting small. Uh, and then of course hoping as i said to, to grow into international markets they are very well aware that they likely won't be able to be to to sell in the united states or us affiliated countries
0: what do you think are the net positives and the major bottlenecks that uh, you know these actors face uh, as of today
2: so i i'll just focus on the major bottlenecks um and then maybe pavia can speak on the strengths so the major bottlenecks and we've kind of touched upon this is the number one challenge that almost every company said was their lack of business acumen, that these people are all professional aerospace engineers, but they don't have an entrepreneurship background. Right. They're not Elon Musk. They're not Jeff Bezos. They're your scientists and your engineers. Um, so they don't know who their customers necessarily are or will be, and they don't have the best business activities. Um, right now, what a lot of them are doing is they're just looking at Western business trends in the commercial space industry. You know, they're looking at Iridium or OneWeb or what OneWeb was last year um, <laughs> as benchmark companies of different activities they can pursue. Um, because, you know, they are quite a few years behind these other companies. So then they're like, well, we'll just watch them where they go, where they succeed, where they find business activity. We will try to replicate it in China in our domestic market. Um, so just, but there's just an overall lack of business acumen, um, where they can build the hardware, but they're not sure who they can sell the hardware to or what they can, the different types of capabilities, um, and downstream capabilities, especially for this hardware. Um, the, another major challenge is the, Investment, as I I said before, that there was a large investment in you know 2014 to 2016, and right now there's this idea of a winter of capital um, that started in 2018, where VC firms are not as easily um, they're not as easily persuaded to invest in new space companies because they're at the point where they're kind of trying to see what the commercial space companies out there are already doing. And their business case is not very strong. So if you're going to get VC investment at this point, it's like you need to be quite a strong player in the commercial space industry. So those that already have established themselves, you know, will likely get more investment. But if you're a new company right now, it might be hard to get you know, VC investment. Um, and then the other major challenge, I would say, is competition with the state-owned enterprises. Um, this is just a large complaint for many of these new space actors because they cannot sell to the government. The government will not buy products from them. The government will only buy products from the state-owned enterprises, and the state-owned enterprises are responsible for all of the government activities. Um, so new space actors understand that, and they're trying to target different customers but at the same time, these state owned enterprises might see that there is a huge success in the commercial space business and also start targeting the same customers, in which case they don't their technology is not as good as the state owned enterprises. They don't have the resources and the human capital that the state owned enterprises have. So that's a huge disadvantage they have when they're competing against SOEs. And then there are some other challenges such as like, you know, their brand, the China brand image is not as good. So they wouldn't be able to sell to Western countries, you know, and they wouldn't be able to collaborate with Western commercial based industries. And there's also the restriction on foreign technologies, you know, with the ITAR and the Wolf Amendment with the U.S., Um, So they're heavily restricted in who they can target as customers or as international collaborators.
1: So it's not all doom and gloom. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously, all of these challenges remain, but, um, uh, you know, the Chinese companies do have some advantages as well. The first one is, and I think we alluded to that at the start, is that they do have policy support from the highest level of government, Document 60 being just one example. And while they may not have financial support from the central government, to the best of our information, they do have financial support from provincial governments. Uh, you know, they have they get in kind and uh, technical and facilities. Uh, you know, land launch facilities um, from the national government, from the provincial and municipal governments as well. Also, the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the state-owned enterprises. Uh, they have the ability to draw on state space capabilities, right? So they can they, as I said, they can launch from the from the government facilities or, or manufacturing in government um, uh, plans. Uh, they have the ability to draw on on the, on the a broader manufacturing capability China has, generally speaking. Um, they have access to a large, young, and well-trained workforce. And there's certainly capital, maybe not as much as we think they do, but there is a lot of venture capital there. Um, uh, um, Xu Fan, Wu Shufan, who is the founder of MinoSpace, uh, uh, uh kind of referenced that when he made a comment that and I'm quoting uh, Chinese economic growth has been so fast, and in the past two years, space has gotten into what we call the wind window and if you are in the wind window, even a pig can fly so so there is money to be to be um, to be used um, uh, they, These are entrepreneurial companies uh, and they are you know constantly looking for new markets and trying to innovate on cost and leveraging what we call the second mover advantage and by that what i mean is you know they they may not be doing a lot of new things they are they are watching other countries especially the united states um uh, have certain innovations and trying to replicate them a really good example of that is for example uh, uh, reusable engines um or 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 you know some kinds of uh, uh manufacturing techniques in in additive manufacturing that Uh, have been proven, and now they just need to move next. So the second mover advantage is actually quite a big deal. Uh, Last but not least, they do have, and Irina mentioned that earlier, uh, they do have potentially large domestic markets that are unencumbered by foreign competitors. Uh, This allows them to work out the bugs domestically before competing with larger, more established foreign space companies. And this is a model they have used in other sectors, right? Their bike sharing or high-speed rail is... Are two two industries where they um, uh, uh, moved out domestically and then internationally. Of course, there's some other issues around competing with SOEs, which we will, which we will get into later later on.
0: Right, and um, one of the questions that I had at this point is: you guys did uh, mention that you saw about seventy eight or maybe up to a hundred companies that uh, may be present today. Do you have a sense of uh, how big these companies are in terms of uh, scale of uh, employees or revenue in terms of investment, maybe, or any other factors?
2: Yeah, so it is very diverse, I would say. You have some companies that might have you know over 100 employees, maybe almost 200 employees at this point, large manufacturing spaces, um, and actual products and revenues to say, then you have some other companies, you know, that might be two or three people um, or just, you know, a founder and an idea and a dream. And they might have a large VC investment right now or they might have one product that they know works, but they're not very established. Um, and then they might have like large open offices where they're trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, so it really depends. I would say the average amongst all of these companies, you know, is Hard to say also because my guess is that there are a lot of small new companies, you know, potentially PowerPoint companies that are coming out. And then you have maybe 10 or 20 very established companies. And these are the companies named in the media sites all the time, you know, like Changuang Satellite Technology, um, OneSpace, LandSpace, um, XSpace and Minospace and all of these large companies that have actually had products. They are ten, they tend to also be the older companies too. So it's like they are, you know, five or six years old at this point. Whereas you also have a lot of companies that are two or three years old that just got their series A, um, VC investments and they don't have products or revenues yet. So. I would say it's all across it's all over the place, um, which is similar to, you know, other new space industries in other countries, too. Right. You have successful companies and then you also have very small companies, too.
0: You know, when you talked about some of the backgrounds of these people starting these companies, you talked about them having worked at the state owned enterprises. Um, it's not easy, very easy for engineers to come out and convince uh, investors to to give money. You know, normally engineers are very good at uh Pitching technically their ideas and maybe establishing uh, the technology baseline for a particular piece of technology, but um, you know you need some at least some training in terms of uh, convincing others to get get some money from them. Uh, do you see any kind of diversity in these founding teams and having you know people from uh, business schools or even having studied abroad and coming back to China and helping these companies take off? Uh, or are founders, uh, you know, mostly just technical and they have some uh, business acumen and they've pitched these uh, investors?
2: So I think most of the founders, at least the ones we talked to, definitely have very technical backgrounds and quite a few of them actually did study abroad. Um, So they might have done a master's or, you know, some type of study abroad where they were exposed to maybe more entrepreneurship And then they went back to china were working at an soe and then realized that you know they wanted more um, independence and more entrepreneurship freedom so i think that was you know the case for quite a few founders um in terms of the diversity of the workforce i would say that when they first started and as pavia mentioned you know vc firms they didn't need any convincing to give money they were just giving money to anyone that had any type of technical plan or any type of, you know, technical expertise. Um, of course, now that's not the case. And you also see that now that these, um, the more successful companies, you know, they do hire people with business backgrounds, with, um, you know, MBAs or business acumen or startup VC experience. Um, and they hire consultants also to get them more capital because commercial space Is extremely capital intensive where you need all of this capital to build up your hardware before you're able to actually see a product. So I think that as they've, you know, matured, they've definitely hired a lot more people for the business side and the marketing side. Um, but they're still very technologically immature. So I would say most of these companies, maybe, you know, 70% of their workforce is in R and D and then 30% of their workforce would be in marketing and in business. Um, And again, those are for the companies that are a little, that have actual products or have actual plans.
0: Bhavya, this is uh, for you. So you talked about, uh, you know, Chinese companies trying to replicate some of the capabilities that uh, are futuristic in terms of, uh, for example, reusable uh, engines and so on. So did you happen to see any technology that was completely new and trying to be established in china for the first time uh and that was not uh you know as an original idea and has not been done anywhere in the world and new space in china is attempting to do that first time ever in the world
1: so in the research which was all done in the 2018-2019 time frame and that's an important caveat because we haven't looked in the last many months and it's it is such a fast-moving sector but in the course of our research, we did not find any companies pushing the edge of technology. Now Now that doesn't mean that they weren't you know at par. So for example, uh, a company called TWR Engine is developing a, a, a pulse detonation engine. Uh, and uh, the US government has looked at this technology. This is where um, there's, you know, this kind involves a liquid rocket motor that would need to produce hundreds of supersonic shockwaves per second to produce enough thrust. To launch or fly, and it sort of makes for a jarring ride, which is maybe why the U.S. didn't pursue it. But it's a it's a technology that the United States is currently not pursuing, but but a Chinese company is. So that's something interesting. Another interesting technology is the dual pulse motor, which is, is which is a type of solid rocket that puts a physical barrier inside the solid fuel, so that instead of having multiple stages, you light it and it burns until it hits the barrier, it stops, and you can coast. And when you want to burn again, you light the next part of the propellant gain, uh, the propellant grain, thus reducing mission complexity. Uh, so, again, this is something that we haven't seen uh, currently going on in the United States, but, but you know, a Chinese company is is working on it. Of course, the thing to note here is that this is a technology that's generally used for anti-aircraft missiles. So the company may be positioning to mature a technology that maybe they would sell later on for defense purposes. Um in terms of developments to watch link space land space and ISpace are all developing liquid rocket motors with reusable flight architectures and I, and i think these are the companies to watch because they might present some competition to western companies eventually in terms of the technology however they are not doing anything that hasn't been done in the west and western companies are certainly for their head however and this is this is a key point that i think we made before and it's worth underscoring they may be able to provide services at a lower price point.
0: Right. So that is uh, what I would also imagine, I suppose, uh, in all of this. Uh, uh, Irina, did, you did talk about uh, the state-owned enterprises and uh, the relationship between the state-owned enterprises and the new space companies, uh, you know, this tension, I suppose, uh, between the, the two of them. Uh, what You know, the... Is there any positives about the relationship between state-owned enterprises and new space companies? For example, uh, do state-owned enterprises provide access to their uh, facilities, let's say a launch pad or some other uh, vibration testing or uh, thermo vacuum chamber testing facilities or something to that end where they say, you know, this is also a, a Chinese company which is trying to do good, so let's just share some of our expensive facilities with them or is it more like... How institutions behave normally. Institutions want to protect themselves. So no matter who the other pers- other institution is, you know, it's uh, or is it this case where the state-owned enterprises uh, don't want to see some of these new space companies succeed, and they don't, they want to be like guarded about uh, everything that they have now.
2: To answer those questions, I think there are a lot of tensions, but also the traditional state-owned enterprises are not as worried about the new space companies. Um, just to answer on the in-kind subsidies is that they do provide a lot of subsidies um, or in-kind subsidies to these new space um, actors. But I mean, for example, like all of the launches are launched from government launch pads, right? Because there are no civil space or commercial space um, launch pads. So it's like that's just something that they do have to work with the governments and the SOEs to agree on. Um, and then a lot of, you know, their office spaces and their manufacturing facilities might be on the grounds of, you know, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, you know, um, where they're just, um, they, and, or they might be just from the provincial government where the land is, um, they don't have to pay rent or they have to, their rent is extremely subsidized or stuff like that. Um, the other thing that I originally was talking about with the... The tensions between or the fact that these SOEs aren't as worried about these new space actors is because these traditional SOEs are so large and they have all of the government business um, that and these new space companies are so small and their technologies, you know, is only focused on the small satellite market that they don't think that these new space companies will be able to enter the sectors that these SOEs are currently in. Um and these new space actors, I definitely think know that, too, because when we interviewed the companies, they all emphasize how they were looking for niche markets that SOEs were not in currently and trying to innovate and evolve and take over those niche markets. And a few of these niche markets, um, well, a lot of the niche markets are in communications, um, especially with the Internet of Things industry and other um, narrow band communications markets that the SOEs are not, you know, they don't have their eye on that right now, and they're not focused on that right now. So the commercial space companies think that this is a place where they have the opportunity, um, and they're unencumbered by these SOEs to really be in that market. Also, when we did interview someone who was much closer to the government, you know, they totally brushed off the new space actors. They didn't even think That, you know, they had any real products or that they were going anywhere or had any revenues. So I would say, you know, at the very high level of traditional, of the traditional SOEs, they're not worried about the new space markets. But then at the same time, they also have spin off companies that are engaged in these markets, right? So they, you know, have small spin off companies such as, you know, uh, Xspace from Kasich or, uh, Kasich Hongyun or Xingyun. Or CASC Hongyan um, that are engaged in the same sectors that the new space companies are engaged in. Except there's they there are not as many resources in those companies, and they don't have as many people um, working for those types of commercial space projects yet.
0: So one of the things that you need, uh, you know, to con- do any kind of space activity, for example, is uh, access to space frequencies, or you know, oversight for launch, for example, to have. Uh, clearance of zones and, you know, so that people are not affected in uh, safety or even for liability and uh, insurance and other purposes. Uh, How uh, is the framework, the policy framework available for uh, new space companies to get uh, access to such uh, space frequencies, for example, or, you know, get uh, access to uh, launch sites or bear insurance? Are these very well established under some sort of policy framework or laws or... uh, uh, how are are, are there you know legacy government uh, institutions like equivalents of FCC, FAA, uh, NOAA of uh, the US uh, in China?
1: So uh, China has a pretty emerging and evolving regulatory infrastructure, right? So there's four four areas where there is something or the other that's needed. So for launch and re-entry, in two thousand two, a document called and again I'm translating here. Irina would know the actual Chinese name. Document called interim measures on the administration of permits for civil space launch projects was released, and it creates a launch approval pro- and licensing process for civil space launches. And uh, you know, to some extent, it applies to uh, to commercial activities. Um, in 2019, the government released, uh, and again, um, this is a translation, a notice on promoting the orderly launch of commercial vehicles. That codifies the interim measures for commercial launches. So, so, you know, the 2000 document does get a, get, get a 2019 update that is meant for, for commercial activity. On, on spectrum, uh, the licensing process is defined in this document, again, translated as People's Republic of China radio regulations. And, um, we couldn't find a whole lot of information on, on, on how commercial entities have access to spectrum. Uh, when we spoke to interviewees, they indicated that spectrum allocation uh, uh, is um, is kind of based on, on their connections, you know, Guanxi is, um, as I call it, but I bet it's pronounced better if, if Irina pronounced it, but basically connections and negotiations is is what, what goes on in the spectrum world. With respect to remote sensing, uh, there is no specific policy that regulates remote sensing. Uh, and most likely it happens through launch licensing. And we, we do know that reg- resolution for commercial imagery is limited to 0.5 meters. Um, there is a, we, we do hear that China may release a commercial, a comprehensive law on commercial space in, in the next five years. Um, but we don't know where that process is at. Our overall assessment on this regulatory piece is that it may enable faster growth in the near term as companies can do things quicker. But in the long term, lack of stable rules uh, will hurt growth of the commercial space industry.
0: OK, so how uh, well informed are policymakers, uh, either in the Chinese government, in uh, the uh, Chinese Communist uh, Party about these uh, new space uh, developments, because one of the things that you see, you know, for example, in India is that uh, the policy makers, honestly, I think, don't care about space so much because uh, the state has a roadmap, uh, which is quite well established. And, you know, they are just delivering the state uh, agency is just delivering on some of it. Uh, but then, you know, the private sector kind of struggles to get its word out on that we exist and we kind of want to do some new things. And and that's always a, a kind of a tension that exists. Right. So is uh, is our. Is is the policy making circles very well, very well informed about new space and uh, if no you know uh, what, what is what is really going on?
2: So I think that the China policy landscape is probably very similar to the India policy landscape in the sense that policymakers are not very focused on the new space actors and on commercial or even civil um, space regulations. Um, a large part because, you know, the only actor in civil space was basically tasked for, you know, the past few decades um, and it was the government. So they didn't need to create regulations for other actors or other you know people in this sector. Um, and this was actually a huge complaint from some of the new space companies when we interviewed them is that they think there's just a lack of guidelines or policy from the government to provide them a sense of like what they can and cannot do. Um, and, you know, what the restrictions on commercial space is uh, or what they're prohibited from doing, but also what they can do and what they should be doing or how to go about, you know, getting spectrum frequencies or getting um, launch licenses or these things. A lot of it is still, you know, based on connections, guanxi, as Pavia talked about, where you just have to know someone, um, you know, in... Like you have to know someone in the government or you have to know someone, you know, who knows someone in this space in order to get the permit or in order to get, you know, in order to understand that your activity is allowed. So they're kind of I think a problem is that these new space, these new space companies are a little bit timid in that they don't want to overstep on anything um, in terms of technology where the government would not allow them to do that and then shut this whole industry down. Um, Which is why, which is a huge part in why they wish they had more guidance from the government or from policymakers.
1: I guess I would, what I would add to that is, while they may not be that much, uh, possibly knowledge or deep insight into the commercial space world, there is a, there is a sense, maybe even an inflated one, that space is one area to, uh, to enable economic development, create new high paying jobs. The so one reason provincial governments are trying to attract space companies to come to their uh, provinces is that you know they 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 think they can create new jobs. Of course, there is also the issue of national pride and geopolitical standing, right? I mean, uh, um, uh, there is a sense that maybe we can have a Chinese SpaceX and um, and uh, and again, not in the commercial world, but in other parts of the Chinese space uh, space industry. There is you know China is trying to get other countries involved in their uh, manned space station program or um, other countries involved in, in their system or activities. Again, not related to commercial, but there is a sense of space being an avenue to create uh, both domestically national pride and internationally a higher geopolitical standing. And then, of course, going to the specific commercial um, uh, context, uh, there is a sense that um, uh, commercial developments can be spun into the The state sector there is a there is a belief that growth of a commercial sector may inject more innovation into the into the bureaucracy as it has done in the United states they believe um, and uh, and there's also a sense that and i think i', I referred to that at the start you know there is there's a, there a spin off of good ideas from within government soes out into profitable private companies and uh, uh, there's also a sense that through these private companies. Uh, they could sell space-based services to non-Chinese customers. So there is, there is, there may not be that much information or insight, but there is, there is quite a bit of interest in space as being an important uh, emerging sector of, of the of the economy.
0: So Wavia, you did mention that uh, you said in the report that um, there's a possibility that uh, the services rendered by these companies might be at a lower cost. Uh, when you mean that, uh, do you mean that uh, the cost per kilogram of a launch vehicle will be lesser, or, or for example, a remote sensing uh, you know, product, uh, data product based on a remote sensing, or maybe not even a data product, it may be a service or an insight-based service. Uh, you know, For example, some economic indicators extracted out of satellite imagery uh, that is available at a lower cost. So do you mean all of it, uh, or you mean only parts of uh, like communication services or imagery-based services?
1: So this question you're asking is actually a really good one, and it really doesn't apply even to just the commercial, the Chinese commercial sector alone, right? That's sort of the question of the day, you know, where is it that money can be made? And of course, yours is a subsection of that, which which is where can the Chinese make disproportionately more money? Um, we are still trying to figure out in the United States what are the profitable sectors, right? So we know communication is profitable. In fact, that's where most of the money in the space sector is made today. Um uh, imagery is obviously another sector where there's a lot of interest, although I think private sector customers haven't materialized to the to the level that was expected five years ago. Governments remain the main uh, main recipients of, of, uh, of imagery data or imagery intelligence. Um, there is there's hope that other areas um, um, you know IOT, uh, broadband uh, might be, where there is uh, where there is there big markets but we, don't, we that remains to be seen um and i mentioned earlier one web went out of business um so now in the us at least uh, there's you know one company that's going to try to uh provide broadband internet and again even that we are not sure of i mean they haven't made any money yet uh so going to your specific question what can the chinese sell more cheaply i think as long as governments are the main main customers um that i mean uh, as long as there aren't consumer uh, products in the space sector uh the the cost issue is not as as um dominant i mean obviously yes they can offer cheaper launch prices um uh, because uh, you know of, of the you know cheaper approaches um they can offer you know uh, services uh, and products, uh, even in space, are sort of small satellites, CubeSats that are cheaper. But ultimately, they are selling to governments, whether it's a Chinese government or governments of other countries. So until we kind of open up the space sector as a consumer product sector, the the advantage is is going to be small. Does that answer your question, Narayanne?
0: Yeah, I would like to ask, uh, you know, this in quite a different way as well. So, for example, right, if you look at some of the Eastern European CubeSat manufacturers or you look at some of the uh, emerging space uh, CubeSat manufacturers, especially from the developing world, you see that their products are often um, substantially lower cost than, uh, let's say, some of the companies in the U.S., or in Western Europe. So I think that uh, one of the reasons for them is purely manpower and uh, infrastructure and operational costs, right? So for example, uh, if I would have to start a company in the US, I would imagine uh, in, the, in the Silicon Valley paying an average engineer about $100,000 a year, minimum, you know, to, run, to have the running cost uh, of, of an engineer. And if I would do that in somewhere in Eastern Europe or in India, it would not be more than possibly you know fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year right so and it's the 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 other bit is of course uh the running cost of infrastructure and rent uh, and uh, many other things that go alongside uh, when you're building a company right so uh in my estimate you know most of the companies uh which involve a lot of manpower in, in engineering and so on so they have to price this kind of manpower cost into it and which ultimately reflects on the end product or the service cost, right? So I was imagining that, uh, you know, there's a case where some of these Indian companies or even, for example, Chinese companies could be successful purely because these costs are lower for, for a, lo- a lot of them. And, uh, and if you say the hardware costs more or less cost the same in both uh, in both the worlds the purely based on these other running costs you would probably see a service at the at the lower cost and them therefore being competitive
1: yes you're absolutely correct mm-hmm. narayan that personnel costs are about a third uh that of the united states and china and i think about a tenth uh, that in india so certainly that's an advantage that china and india have uh and um, and i'm sure those companies will work, work very very hard to leverage that advantage there's no doubt about it um, and we are seeing some of this already. So there's a French company called Thrustme, which developed a, a cold gas thruster fueled by a solid iodine, which is a first-of-a-kind propulsion system for small satellites. And the best I understand, they weren't able to get uh, any entity in the Western world to launch their... their to, to They basically needed to do a demonstration that their thruster works. Um, and And the only entity they would find... Uh, that would launch for them is this Chinese company Space City, so their thruster was launched with Space City, uh with the, with a the Space City cubesat, and I don't know the details of how it's doing, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, Chinese companies provide. I mean, already that's a, that's an advantage that um, that was possible only because a Chinese company was willing to take more risk, uh, employing an untested propulsion system, and maybe a Western company wouldn't.
2: I think the other thing to add is that, you know, Chinese companies do, they're currently focused on cost innovation, right? They're not, you know, doing new technologies or being at the edge of the technological innovation ecosystem, right? They're basically, you know, taking technologies and trying to lower the cost of them by, you know, maybe using components that weren't made for um, the space industry or taking more risks so that they're you know, their technology might be more risky, but it would be cheaper. Um, and they are very much focused on cost innovation because they've seen cost innovation succeed in other um, technology sectors in China, right? Um, you've seen it in a lot of in other industries where they're able to innovate on costs and then therefore just become the whole market because they're so much cheaper, such as in solar panels, where they actually went too cheap. Um, but so that is definitely one of their main focuses. And, you know, they can do it through labor. They can do it also through their hardware. It is easier to source cheaper hardware, I think, in China than it would be in America, um, for example. And then the other thing is they're just trying to figure out how to make each component and all of the things they do um, at a cheaper rate um, instead of maybe focusing on making new technologies or making new products that haven't shown actual you know, business
0: value yet. And uh, one of the things you did mention is um, incentives from the local governments. Uh, is there any analysis uh, or perspectives on how incentives from the state, uh, you know, are present to the new space companies? For example, here in Europe, for example, you have the some of the European Union or the European Commission uh, programs like Horizon 2020 or other such government instruments that provide uh, new space companies or SMEs, for example, you know, one to two million euros in terms of grants in some technology areas, or for example, it could be the SBIR and the SCTR and uh, some of the Air Force uh, grants that uh, U.S. companies have been getting. Are there any equivalents uh, in China for them?
2: Um, There are not. So I would say if they, if the government do give out these grants, they would mostly go to the SOEs or the Chinese Academy of Sciences. These new space actors do not get almost any grants, I would say, from the national government, um, to do space projects. But in terms of the provincial governments, I mean, um, the provincial governments are building, you know, these industry bases, these aerospace industry bases, where they basically create facilities and all of the um, space that you need to run a company and then they're hoping that they can attract you know these new space companies to these indust- uh aerospace industry bases or or even you know um, the companies the spin-off companies of um, Kasich or cast to these you know new areas um so I would say that's you know a huge advantage but I would say the grant system does not, you know, it would specific grants to develop specific technologies would go to the Academy of Sciences or Cask or CASIC.
1: Yeah, just to add on to that, uh, when we spoke to some of these companies, they were actually quite aware of some of these tools that are in, avail- available to U.S. companies, for example, and, and they would push back when we would say when we, we would talk about you know spacex being a commercial company they would say well how are they a commercial company 75 percent of their revenues come from the government so um they were in fact quite uh, aware of the lack of opportunities they have um uh, as compared with the the u.s and western counterparts uh, and they wish that they, you know these sorts of mechanisms existed for them my sense is, again, again, this is not in the from the report, so I should be clear that it's my personal view. My sense is that the government is just trying to let some of these companies just fight it out, sort of, you know, figure out who's the best. And then once, you know, a company emerges because they have either better technology or better business acumen or, you know, better set of investors, then that's when uh, they may start to see some government investment or government interest. But for now, it seems that, it's a it's a food fight and it's a free-for-all and uh, whoever you know you know whoever does well will be the one who is the victor and gets government um, uh, support but that's not in our report but I just want to be sure that this is my personal view
0: yeah sure Uh, one of the you know things that I see for example in India is says not much of banding of uh, some of these new space companies uh, coming together to voice you know their opinion as uh, as an industry together right so there's probably some companies that are saying uh, in private meetings uh, or you know in just uh, having connections as you said in voicing them out in uh, kind of more uh, private channels or just uh, face-to-face conversations on not really in the public domain uh, or through an industry association for example Uh, Are there any kind of such uh, developments where, uh, you know, new space actors are trying to form industry associations and trying to place their set of demands as as an industry for government
2: to change? I would definitely say there's no lobby of new space Chinese companies, basically. Um, They're, you know, they're all individual actors. And while they all know each other, and they all talk to each other, they're definitely not lobbying the government for specific policies at least and and you're right it's like at least not publicly um i i do think that you know all of them talk to uh you know government policymakers or um soe um leaders you know maybe on a personal connection basis trying to you know state their case but they're they definitely haven't come together as you know one, one industry to say this, these are our demands, and this is what we need. Uh, and in general, I, I would say that's not the case for the Chinese um, innovation ecosystem. It's definitely, again, these are, this is my personal view, too. It's definitely what, like Pavia said, is that the government kind of allows all of the different companies to fight it out, you know, to see who can innovate on cost the most, who has the cheapest products, who has the best products. Um, and then pick a victor from those companies. And you see it uh, in other industries, how this has happened, where they definitely are all starting, and they're trying to make their industry po- profitable. Um, and they're all just competing, you know, for the best things. Um, and then so they're not banding together as you would, you know, as an industry corporation or something.
0: why i asked that is uh, because you know you see that uh, as well in india where it may be also uh, you know fear of being too small or uh, fear of uh, kind of uh, having repercussions for being public about not getting support from the government Uh, i was just imagining are these some of the factors as to why you see these cultural barriers i would say uh, in some of these uh, regions, because, you know, it may be a cultural barrier because even in case of, for example, you know, some other geographies, let's say Europe or U.S., you might see some of these new space actors band together and place a list of recommendations, right? You, you, that's not really unimaginable in, in, the, in the U.S. or maybe even in, in Europe.
2: Right. I mean, I, I think your question is definitely, you know, a great question. It's just not something we studied specifically in the report. But I mean, in general, my sense is that people do not, you know, make recommendations to the government in any public way, you know, in fear of any kind of repercussions or retaliation. Right. Um, so I would say that would all happen, you know, behind the scenes. Um, but again, we did not study this, so I don't know if that is if that's the case or not.
1: Right. I mean, it, we, it wasn't a specific question we posed, and it certainly didn't emerge organically in any discussions. Nobody brought up the creation of a, you know, a small satellite industry group or anything like that.
0: So, how does the Chinese uh, population, the people, react to new space? Because, for example, you know, if you look at some of the Reddit forums in India or, you know, open forums that are out there, you see a lot of discussion and debate happening about new space actors and how the government must be encouraging them and there's a kind of a broad public support, for example, for some of these new space actors in India, for example, right? So where people want them to see uh, them succeed and replicate some of the successes that India has had in, you know, the IT sector or the biotechnology sector. Kind of replicate that in the space sector. So did you have a sense of uh, you know what is the perception in the society for some of the new space actors or was it just too small?
1: So we didn't specifically study this Narayan so I don't think we can comment on it. Uh, I would say that in general uh, uh, there's growing interest in China and in space and science fiction. So, you know, the three-body problem, the science fiction book, uh, which, uh, which is part of a trilogy, is getting greater traction across the board. So there's just growing interest. And of course, you know, Chang'e 5 is going to bring back samples from the moon. Uh, there's a lot of interest in, in that. Uh, you know, China is launching a, a probe to Mars. Um, so I, I think for a lot of people, maybe they don't make the distinction between commercial space and, and government space. Uh, there's just a lot of excitement, you know. If you just kind of follow general media about China's, uh, you know, growing leadership in space. But like I said, we did not specifically study this topic, so we don't know how people distinguish between new space and 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 government space.
0: Right. So that's uh, something that I uh, I imagined as well. So you have seen now a lot of the companies in the in the US and Europe uh, that have had a legacy of being in new space for 10 plus years now. There's a lot of uh, consolidation happening. Uh, Some of them are folding. Some of them are having some exits through acquire uh, getting acquired or so on. So how does that look like in China at the moment? Is it the the ecosystem is too young for any kind of exits? Uh, Or, you know, are there deaths of some of these companies or?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something that we also wanted to know and wanted to figure out. So we did ask, you know, companies and subject matter experts about the exit landscape. And for the most part, it's just because the industry is so new and the idea of commercial space is so new that the exit landscape is quite unclear. Uh, We asked if any companies have failed and, you know, it was mentioned to us that there was one company that had failed and had gone out of business um, just because they, you know, spent all of their capital, but it's very hard. And, and that's because they knew people from that company that they were able to tell us that, you know, one company has failed in the past five years. But it's very also, it's also very hard just to tell when a company, you know, folds or fails because their website still might be up, you know, they just might have less activity. Um, so I, I would say just in general, the exit landscape is just very unclear for China right now, um, in the commercial space sector. And we'd probably see in the next, you know, decade, in the next five to 10 years, you would probably see companies consolidating together or companies, um, just kind of going out of business quietly, because I doubt there would be a company who files for bankruptcy and then, you know, uh, makes the media news being like this company failed. So
0: we know that uh, you touched upon this as well, Irina uh, and Bhavya, you too, that uh, once something happens in China and they get uh, an act together in a, one part of an a innovation, in one part of a, a value chain, they're really good at it in terms of optimizing cost of performance. Cost of performance, uh, the smartphone world is uh, one of the best examples for it, where you see, you know, Chinese companies uh, creating kind of cheaper products initially, but then optimizing uh, performance of them and today you know some of the best smartphones in the world come out of the Chinese companies uh, and they provide one of the best uh, like cost to performance ratios out out there so will this kind of uh, you know how will this uh, happen in the new space or the space world do you see this uh, also happening in the space world where they say that uh, you know, these try, these companies are trying to find uh, uh, kind of a footing at the moment, but then, you know, once they find a piece of technology that works for them and uh, a particular piece of service, uh, do you think that, uh, you know, there are indicators that tell that they can be very competitive around the world or is there anything that sets them apart from any other companies or any other ecosystems?
1: I mean, I think this is one of those areas where, most companies are way too embryonic to have um have successes. And when we spoke to them about, you know, can you can you, you know can you tell us more about your business plans or can you tell us more about who your customers are or what your future market plans are, we really didn't get a sense that many of them knew knew that. Uh I mean obviously there's probably some companies, uh especially in the launch sector where 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 there's a lot of sophistication. But for most companies that are, you know, two to three years old, they are, um, uh, you know, many of them are just are struggling. And some of them obviously are are gaining their footing. Um, But I think we need to wait to see where, you know, what, you know, what it is that might emerge. I mean, even for companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, you know, it was, you know, they were both created in 2001 and 2002, respectively. So, you know, it took about, you know, 15, 20 years before uh, they could go to a, a point where they had a critical mass. Uh, so I think um, I mean obviously the Chinese companies will grow faster because one they have seen you know they're replicating success right so they're not creating things um, from whole cloth they know that reusable engines engines will work it's just a matter of you know doing it and having enough experience that you can do it consistently uh, and and we just have to to watch I mean uh, there are some some disadvantages that these companies would have that really are important to note, right? So policies from the U.S. and other Western governments um, uh, would be such that they will not be able to sell in some of these markets. Uh, They have to try harder to survive in domestic markets and markets in the developing world. Uh, Maybe they can do more in the Belt and Road countries. However, that's where they they are going to be competing with the state-owned enterprises. Um, uh, things like uh, export controls uh, by Western uh, uh, countries uh, are already quite tough. Uh, so it is unlikely that uh, more restrictions will hinder the commercial space sector. Uh, so so there's a lot of things we see on the wall, um, uh, the writings on the wall, but uh, we just need to kind of wait and see how it
2: evolves. I think... Like to add that the fear that they will find something in the value chain and then innovate on cost on that specific thing and then just take over the entire market is a real fear, at least in America, which is why you get all of the, you know, media news articles saying that China is so far ahead and China has so much money in this commercial space thing because they have had a lot of success in, as you said, the smartphone industry and other industries where they're able to just take, replicate success, you know, innovate on cost, and then just totally kick out all of the other international competitors. Um, so that I think that fear is real. We haven't seen it in the commercial space sector yet. Um, and then as Pavia also said, there is a lot of, you know, uh, um, regulations, especially from the U.S., um, and you kind of see it with Huawei right now and the U.S. government is just that, you know, even if they are able to innovate on costs, would they be able to export their goods and services to um, international markets at this point? Um, and that's, you know, that's the challenge of the brand image issue.
1: And again, just to reiterate something I said earlier, as long as space markets remain government dominated, It's sort of one direction. Uh, and if space markets do become more consumer dominated, then China can really leverage some of its core capabilities in a rapid mass production, you know, skilled space industry workforce, ability to develop products very quickly, things that they have done in the telecom and IT sectors. Uh, in that case, commercial companies would likely fare much better than uh, than other Western companies. But, I mean, the scenario is very specific that space is a a market which has a lot of customers, including consumers and individuals, not just governments.
0: So one of the interesting uh, areas uh, that space, uh, you know, new space, at least, for example, in India, I think has scope is uh, integration into like defense requirements because uh, India has, for example, six times less number of operational space assets than uh, China has. According to some of the latest uh, estimates, uh, I imagine that uh, state-owned enterprises also cater to the defense requirements, and uh, they may not be, you know, much of uh, a distinction between uh, defense and uh, civilian assets in China. I don't know how that really works there, uh, but is there any indication that uh, you know, uh, armed forces and the military in China would be interested in new space? Uh, as it is now, for example, with uh, the U.S. Air Force uh, in in the U.S.
1: Um, we didn't specifically look into this, and we it certainly didn't emerge in any of the discussions. So I'll say my thoughts, and I do feel free to jump in. Um, the sense some of these companies have is that SOEs are the ones that will be addressing large government markets. They don't see themselves as being able to. Plug in Again, you know, they complained about that and they did bring up the fact that the U.S. government is so supportive of small companies uh, supporting the defense enterprise. But again, um, you know, they may be being modest. They may not know some of the details, but we, I did not get a sense that they were aiming for defense uh, markets. I mean, I know you talked to companies I didn't talk to.
2: Yeah, I would generally say they're not targeting the government as their main market right now. Because they know that it's completely dominated by Cask and Kasich. And specifically for defense and military space capabilities, that's completely done by Kasich. Um so they know that this market is not easy to get into, which is why I would think that they aren't catering to those defense requirements. Um but you know that may change in the next in the next few years, right? If if suddenly like the defense um industry in china opens up to uh commercial actors then that would be completely different but i think in general the the entire defense industry in china is extreme it's all government owned and government operated none of it is available to private actors
0: so you guys uh, you know your folks that uh mentioned about uh You know, the kind of companies that there are, companies trying to build uh, rockets or satellites or ground stations or imagery-based services, Uh, in your survey of these companies, did you happen to see any areas in upstream or downstream of the ecosystem where there was possibly no innovation or uh, large gaps, Uh, you know, some areas uh, that have no companies at all?
2: So... The sectors we identified, you know, was like launch manufacturing, um, satellite manufacturing, remote sensing communications, the ground segment, and some downstream activities mostly related to um, remote sensing. So I think those are the main sectors. And, you know, there are, you know, industries, there are certain sectors that exist in other countries that may not exist in China, but China does their commercial, The commercial space companies do hit all of their your main commercial space industries, right? I would say one difference is that in China, the sense that remote sensing, um, the potential for remote sensing in commercial space is much smaller than it is in the US, that uh, most of the satellite operations companies are focused on communications or the communications market, um, just because... A, China has a huge population, so they have a huge need for communications amongst all of these people. Um, so they're they're really focused much more on communications than remote sensing, which is not necessarily the sense in the United States, I would say. Another thing that they kind of are not focused on is that they're not focused on any like any they're not focused on the large satellite market. They're all focused on small satellites right now. And I think that's a result of their, just their technological capabilities, that they just don't have the technical expertise to launch or to build large satellites at this point. So it might change, you know, in the next <coughs> decade or so. But the other reason that they might that they are focused on the small satellite market is because, you know, Cask and CASIC dominate in terms of the large satellites. You know, they they have that capability to create launch um, manufacture large satellites. So if they were to build larger satellites, they would have to compete against SOEs more head-to-head. So I think those... So they're all focused on the small satellite market as of right now. Um, And I think those are the two main reasons for that.
0: Right. And from what I know, there are, of course, uh, some of the established private companies in uh, China. They may not call themselves new space companies, but they were, of course, a lot of the companies like... uh, 21st century aerospace technology that uh, operates a fleet of remote sensing satellites and uh, you know head aerospace maybe that also has acquired some of the companies in Europe and has assets in uh, in France and in the Netherlands and uh, and other places as well uh, so uh, You know like what is their relationship with new space if, if there is any and if do they view them as uh, some sort of a competition or uh, You know, what is uh, the dynamic between them?
2: Right. So these companies that you've talked about, the established private companies, um, they've also ramped up their commercial space activity. I would say like beforehand, like Head Aerospace or like Juhai Orbita um, had very limited business activities. They were mostly just companies manufacturing um, small components for large space SOEs. um, And they didn't they weren't, you know, building or operating their own. Uh, satellites, I would say. Um, you know, and 21AT was also only focused on, you know, certain limited remote sensing activities. But, you know, since 2013, 2014, 2015, you know, this timeline, these companies have become much more engaged. Um, they now have plans, you know, to manufacture whole satellites themselves, and they're seeking to operate their own satellite constellations. So they're engaging as much as other new space companies that we've seen that were established, you know, maybe later, but they're engaging in the same types of business activities. And they are definitely part of the new space industry. Um, they've pivoted a lot of um, their business activities. And you see this with other companies, too, such as like um, CCT Satcom or Tatwa Smart Tech. Where they were not in the space industry at all. They were in the electronics industry or, you know, other tech, uh, technology industries that did not relate to space at all. And then suddenly they have entered the uh, commercial space industry and now also are participating in this industry in the hopes that, you know, p- they're pivoting from, uh, technology that is be- going to be obsolete soon into the space industry, which they think uh will be much more relevant in the future
1: when we were doing the project one thing we heard from the small companies was that uh even for constellations they were focusing on iot or other sort of you know narrow bandwidth applications and broadband was something that they would never consider it was just too expensive so they were never they never thought they would be you know competing with spacex for you know broadband constellation but just in the recent weeks and you know our project is well over by now uh, we have seen at least one company wanting to develop a broadband constellation so things are moving pretty fast and and also changing um as again you know as as they maybe get more venture funding maybe potentially more support from the government uh and and uh also just moving up the capability curve right
0: yeah, I also did see that uh, one of the automobile m- manufacturers, I think Geely also now has a space division and uh, they started hiring hundreds of people uh, and are looking to establish their own uh, satellite uh, network um, in, in, in as well. That's uh, also something fascinating because you have now a, a non-space actor, but an established actor from a non-space uh, sector now entering space and seeing value there to be extracted.
2: Yeah, I definitely think it's really interesting that these companies, you know, who are very established in their own, um, ecosystems and spheres decided that, you know, space would be the next big thing and that they wanted to invest, you know, in it right now before, you know, business, businesses have really shown that, you know, commercial space is successful and profitable on a large scale because these companies are very large and to, you know, start pivoting towards this new sector is very interesting. Um, But again, they're doing it to, you know, remain profitable and remain, you know, relevant um, because, you know, certain technologies are becoming obsolete, Um, you know, certain component manufacturing and whatnot is becoming obsolete. So, and, and space is new, especially in China, the domestic, you know, commercial space market is completely new in China.
1: And 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 this is a thing that's not just true for China, but the United States and other countries as well. There's a sense of this, you know, coming trillion dollar economy, and everybody wants a piece of that. Neil deGrasse Tyson, this noted astrophysicist, said the first trillionaires in the world would be those who are mining asteroids. Uh, so so there is a sense that there is you know there is just money to be made in every corner in space, and, and China wants to be part of that. And, you know, good for them. Good for all of us who want to do that. Uh, I was going to make one other point. Oh, yeah, uh, we were talking about any areas where there is uh, the, we didn't see commercial companies. I would say asteroid mining, we only saw one company maybe, and that's potentially a PowerPoint company, and also CisLunar. So in the United States, there are you know plenty of companies, small companies, startups, that are looking at the moon as a as a place to... Uh, focus. I don't think we saw any commercial companies in China focusing on the moon or lunar activities.
0: I have a completely stupid question to ask at this point of time, which is, uh, why are some of these uh, names of these companies so funny? Because they're like X-Space and, you know, Space-T uh, and Land-Space and, you know, whatever uh, names. And is, are these bad, uh, bad English uh, translations of, uh, of Mandarin or are these ridiculously bad names given by people of these companies?
2: Actually, this is a great question because it totally bamboozled us when we were trying to figure out these companies, why their names were, you know, just so bizarre to us. Um, well, they were bizarre in the sense that they were all very, very similar. They all have space in them. And they're all kind of different combinations of SpaceX, honestly, at the end of the day. Like you have X space, which is, you know, almost just the exact, you just put the X in front of the space. Um the thing is, when we try to research these companies using their English names, you, you, you just find very limited information, and then you realize that their Chinese names are completely different. Their Chinese names, you know, mean totally different things. They phonetically sound totally different. So then they created these English names to create catchy names, basically, um, and then to try to kind of imitate SpaceX. So that's why you have like SpaceOK, okay, OneSpace, LandSpace, ISpace... X um, space, you know, all of these names that have space in them and maybe one other syllable so that it's extremely catchy. Um, but then it makes it very hard for the researcher to do any work because then it just seems like they're all the same company. Um, and then at the same time, they all have their own um, names in Chinese that mean completely different things. So it's very hard to associate one from the other.
1: And, and I think part of the heavy lifting Irene and other colleagues did on the project was try to to kind of map the Chinese and the English names and and kind of align the information that was being made available on their Chinese WeChat handles and their English websites. Actually, one interesting point, and I don't know, maybe you can uh, expand on this. We found that many companies didn't have websites at all. and, And we wondered if that's because they are not looking at Western markets or customers and, um, Maybe there's sort of other other thinking behind how they decide to disseminate their their products and services. Arina, do you wanna
2: yeah. comment on that? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of companies who, even when they mm-hmm. did have websites, their website would be bare bones, but then their WeChat handle would have just so much information on it. And I think that just speaks to the prominence of WeChat in China and how more people, you know, more people are mobile users than uh, laptop users. And that WeChat is just so much more prominent than an internet browser at this point. Um, you can follow, you know, different companies, different people, different activities, all on WeChat, and everything is done from WeChat. So there are a lot of companies that, you know, only post in WeChat and Weibo, which makes it harder, again, for the English speaker or, you know, a U.S.-based person to delve into what these Chinese companies are actually doing, because these Chinese companies Don't you know? Aren't advertising to you know English speakers or non-Chinese based customers at this point?
0: So, Irina, I'm going to push you hard on this stupid question again a little bit uh, further, and asking you if there's any like, uh, does the Chinese name of these Chinese companies make sense in uh, or you know uh, what the what do they translate to?
2: Uh, These Chinese companies. Oh my goodness! The thing is, the Chinese names. Oftentimes what it is, is it, you know, it's, uh, it's like, um, an LLC name, like the official name of these companies in Chinese are not very catchy. Um, so it'll have like, you know, the, the Beijing, like, and then the four characters that are unique space industry cooperation or corporation or something. So they're all, their official, like Chinese names are all very long and very similar, and then they created they create like a catchy um short name, right? So like Minospace Space in Chinese is Wei Na uh Wei Na Space basically. <laughs> and then um and that does not translate at all to Minospace. Space. Um and then it'll just be like these two characters that change for all of these companies in Chinese too. Um because they all they all have space in their Chinese names as well. Um and in terms of what these chi- these names in Chinese mean, I mean, it just means different. It's just different variations on space again. Um, so I think, you know, all of the name creating industry in China is is very fascinating, I would say, um, based on, you know, they're trying to find out what's trendy, what's catchy, you know, how to get people interested in you, how do people remember your name um, and all of those things right
0: thanks uh, thank you for the for the explanation there i think uh, it's it's one of the questions that has been running in my mind for a while and uh, i i i got a good answer i guess for the first time uh, in in that sense so we know of course that uh, large markets in china are not available to western companies and uh, have not been available in the internet domain and uh, so many other domains uh, do you imagine this to also happen in the space sector where uh, Chinese companies will have China exclusively for themselves uh, or is there any role for any non Chinese uh, actors to have a market entry into China to provide any kind of services or is there any kind of them already established if I missed anything
1: so I, I guess I will I will turn it over to Aina after making a short comment so one web this uh broadband internet company that just recently uh, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy um, had plans to to have a, a, to, to have customers in China. So I don't think it's out of the realm that uh, non-Chinese companies will have Chinese markets. Obviously, the devil is in the details, what kind of deal they had and what are the sorts of you know, intellectual property uh, aspects they had to give away. We don't have any details on that, but OneWeb did have plans to sell in China. that's just one anecdote. Uh, uh, Irina, do you have any other thoughts on this?
2: I mean, we there is definitely we asked, you know, subject matter experts whether, you know, American commercial space companies would be able to sell into China. And because the space industry has been so closed off to basically all actors that were not government actors for so long, that would be very hard for any other countries, you know, companies to come into China and dominate this space. But that, um, that may be changing right now because um, as, you know, the private industry opens up, um, you know, uh, non-Chinese space actors might be able to enter China much more easily and get um, better deals because they can find, you know, better uh, collaboration partners amongst the private space actors. But when we talk to, you know, a few communications companies specifically because communications is so global, we asked them, you know, how, how, how do they see this international collaboration happening? Um, they say for the most part right now, they don't think they can collaborate with, you know, American companies at at the very least because of, you know, the international regulations with ITAR and all of the restrictions. Um, so that might be it might be actually a huge disadvantage for U.S. companies in the fact that they cannot sell to um, Chinese companies. Um, to enter the Chinese market
1: while European companies can. So we, as part of our discussion with Chinese companies, we learned that, you know, they are, they have suppliers in Europe. Uh, So, you know, there's European component companies selling in China, but um, um, not American ones. Or I, I mean, I don't know about Indian companies
0: yeah of course Um, and i i don't imagine any indian companies selling uh, to china as well or even procuring from china in the space sector uh, as well so one of the interesting uh, developments in china of course is the whole uh, you know artificial intelligence uh, quantum communication and uh, these kind of uh, new areas where uh, china is uh, at least in mainstream media to have uh, you know to have taken lead in in many of the developments there, Uh, you know, uh, you did speak about uh, remote sensing and satellite imagery based services, not as uh, popular or not as well established in China at the moment. But that's an area where, uh, you know, uh, AI has a role and maybe even, uh, um, you know, can generate a lot of value, I guess, uh, when developed or the other one is of course quantum communication people have been talking about it for for a while saying the chinese are way ahead of everybody there uh, and nobody else is there around and people have to catch up and so on so how uh, you know can you briefly talk about you know what is the state of the art there and uh, and you know how how integrated ca- can satellites get into all of this given that uh, i don't know if ai is looked at as a completely different ecosystem and it can merge into space or uh, you know, that's something that I wanted to hear from you.
1: So absolutely, I mean, just to start with the very last point, um, AI is, is an area absolutely that would merge into space. So in America, the company relativity space is combining AI techniques and manufacturing and 3D printing to, you know, to have entirely automated factories developing their rocket engines. So so uh, absolutely the case. But I w- But I would like to quibble with your assessment that China is a leader in some of these areas. I mean, there's reliable open source, uh, note uh, reports that note that China is not the leader in AI or in quantum computing or quantum sensing. The only area where they could potentially have a lead in, is quantum networking or quantum communications, as you said, which for a variety of reasons, the US has not prioritized. So it's an area we have chosen not to focus on. And again, uh, I'm, you know, this is not of research and so I'm not hundred percent sure why that's the case, but it is. Uh, it is the case, um, uh, uh, and you know if this is an area that uh, gives the Chinese an edge, I'm sure they would leverage it to the extent that they can. And there was just a news article this morning on on um, you know some success that they had on a, on a small satellite and and and, and quantum uh, computing. Uh, so uh, it's something that we want to be watching carefully and and learning from.
0: Recently, we had this announcement from uh, the government of India of. Uh essentially creating a regulator called InSpace. it was just uh, you know a few days ago uh, as of today's uh, recording so uh, this is a massive change because uh, essentially the government is signaling that uh, the private sectors are welcomed and it's in fact trying to even create a regulatory uh, institution that can that can help the sector take off uh, is there any signal that uh, this can happen in China, from, w- from what, uh, what you've said so far, it looks like there is no such regulator in the, in the Chinese ecosystem at the moment and uh, is there any likelihood that they may emerge or, uh, in China in the, in the years ahead so that it may give some impetus to some of these companies to be more kind of, uh, I don't know, independent?
1: So uh I mean, I kind of walked you through the four areas of regulation and uh, you know some effort on part of China to support the companies, but overall, China does not have a a, a policy that would uh, influence this private space or the commercial space sector. I mean, we keep hearing it it's coming out in the next five years. But when we spoke to some of the legal experts in China, they said that that has been said for the last many years that it's coming out in the next five years, and they are not confident it will come out. So again, We don't have any sort of inside knowledge on that. We just, you know, we are just kind of reporting on what we heard in our interviews. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that.
2: Yeah, I would definitely say there's no comprehensive space law in general for all of space, not just commercial space. Um, And then there definitely is no comprehensive law for commercial space. So if the government, you know, makes commercial space a priority, I think they you know, maybe you see some regulatory body come out, but in general, you know, that has not happened. And, um, that has not happened for other industries either, where they have a whole regulatory body just for one industry, um, one commercial industry. Um, so we're just waiting and seeing, um, and then all of the other space companies are also just waiting and seeing and hoping that some comprehensive space law does come out.
1: Yeah. And again, I mean, it's not so unusual. The, the United States doesn't have a comprehensive framework for commercial activities, right? So for launch and re-entry, you go to the FAA. For Spectrum, you go to the FCC. For remote sensing license, you go to NOAA. Uh, if you want to do on-orbit servicing, you, you, there's nobody to go to for the moment. So there's a huge regulatory gap. So these are complicated things. And in fact, the countries which have newer space activities are better at doing this. So New Zealand, which just created a A space agency a few years ago has a comprehensive framework, but they're brand new, so they can. Uh, Countries that have been doing this for a while, like the United States and China and others, and and even India, uh, it's just hard. There are legacy systems in place and and bureaucratic pushbacks on, on efforts to make any overarching changes
0: so uh, one of the questions that i had here is uh, how integrated is uh, chinese space-based services uh, by you know traditional uh, state-owned enterprises into the economy as in uh, for example you know right now india is looking at potentially integrating satellite imagery f- uh, for crop insurance uh, in federally governed uh, crop insurance schemes so far they've been using manual techniques to estimate uh, crop yield estimates and only now they've been con- conducting pilot projects and uh, looking at uh, the potential of uh, integrating satellite into you know uh, the whole crop uh, insurance schemes that are run by the government so it could also mean that you know for example you in india you don't have um, space based or satellite based uh, internet it's all currently either fiber or or you know, telecommunication, terrestrial telecommunications. There's hardly any uh, you know space-based uh, internet services available in any parts of India, just because ISRO hasn't uh, established those services very well yet. Um, so uh, I wanted to get a sense of um, how such uh, services are integrated in China at the moment. Uh,
1: so um, Naren, this is not an area we looked at uh, mainly because the commercial, the emerging companies aren't really doing some of this right i mean the 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 support that is for the agriculture sector or other sectors is probably coming from the state owned enterprises and i'm sure those systems are are well in
2: place we just haven't looked we did, just didn't look at them i i also think the commercial space companies you know they're they're not integrated because they don't have the products for these things yet of course they're working you know one of their things is they hope to work with provincial governments that may not have as many uh that may not have as much access to um the national space assets um or cask and casic and work with the provincial um governments to create, you know, Internet of Things or these uh, the idea of smart cities, right? Where everything is just all space based, um, smart cities and, you know, traffic lights and um all of those things are just connected through this space based IoT um ecosystem. So I mean that is their goal and then they were um and they're working with provincial governments to do that but you know it you can't say they're integrated right now because those products and those services don't exist yet.
0: Yeah, I think uh, so far I think the conversation is very clear as to where the the pivots are and it's quite clear that they are not looking at government as a, an immediate customer maybe and then looking more up to the commercial sectors uh, possible. Um so how do you see this sector evolving in the next uh, five years uh, in, in China? Do you see uh, massive uh, mushrooming of more companies or you know venture funding uh, not uh, being available anymore because uh, some of these companies have not been successful? Uh, what's your sense of this?
1: So um, yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, as we've been saying, most companies are about two to three years old. Um, while, you know, they are in an embryonic stage and, and many appear to be struggling, they are slowly gaining their footing. I mean, it took even companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin a decade or more to become successful. And, and we do believe that in the next decade, a small number of Chinese commercial companies could grow to a point where they have critical mass, especially if markets that benefit from the launch and use of small satellites grow rapidly. Right now, there's a, there, there, about five years ago, there was, a sense that you know small satellites will just explode, and and they sort of have have, but not to the extent that was predicted. So 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 the success of the small sat market is is um, is something that is something we would need to watch and see. If if the small sat sector does grow as rapidly as is currently being posited, uh, the Chinese government will certainly take a greater role in ensuring the success of these commercial companies, as it has done in adjacent sectors like telecom and IT. Um, uh, Policies from the U.S. and other countries will likely not have a large effect on the growth of the commercial space sector, especially if Chinese commercial companies are able to survive in domestic markets. Uh, And foreign uh, government controls on exports and imports of Chinese products are already quite tough, making it unlikely that, you know, if we put any other restrictions, that would heavily hinder the commercial space market in China. If the Chinese government and and the large SOEs continue to dominate the space sector in in China and and constitute the majority of demand for future space applications, the development of the Chinese commercial space sector would likely follow the model of high-speed railroad um, and sort of other areas, you know, solar power that they have followed in the past. In such a scenario, Chinese companies would likely slowly develop capabilities by first serving the large domestic market and then expanding internationally internationally using the advantages they they would have accumulated on the domestic market with respect to both cost and capabilities. And and we have sort of hinted to that throughout our discussion. This scenario actually would favor SOEs, especially the SOE subsidiaries focused on commercial business. So so this may help some of the commercial companies succeed um, than others. If on the other hand, and again, I have hinted to that as well, if space applications become of greater interest to businesses and households, so, for example, Broadband Internet becomes successful, or imagery is is something that individuals and companies buy to a much greater degree than they do today. China really can leverage its its sort of core competencies and rapid mass production uh, using its uh, skilled industry workforce, its ability to quickly develop products, uh, and 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 in that case, some of these emerging companies would likely fare much better. And there would be many more opportunities for them to capture the market domestically and internationally. I mean, the Chinese, they have the money, they have the smarts. Uh, there is no reason that they won't be successful in this area like they have been in so many others. I hope this answers your question.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, we're, you know, reaching the, the end of the conversation. So I would like to ask you, both of you, to uh, kind of, give an insight into what really stood out to you personally, maybe uh, when you went into the study and when you finished it, uh, what was kind of things that baffled you or, you know, maybe things that you thought made some assumptions that were were really grossly wrong. uh, And then, you know, uh, you learned through this uh, process of having visited them and having talked to them. uh, Because I think those are some elements that might not have been very, Uh, catchy to capture in the report, it's because the report is normally very professional and you have to table your views that are very professional, but uh, it may not capture something uh, you know that you took personally, right?
1: So I would say that's a great question by the way Narayan. Um, One thing that I learned, so I, I focus on understanding commercial space in the United States, that's my area. So you know how they say that if you want to understand your own country, you go abroad and that's when you get the greatest insights about your country. I kind of had that feeling when I went to China, trying to understand the commercial space sector helped me understand the American commercial space sector much better. It forced me to see things that I didn't, hadn't seen before. Um, you know, what does it really mean if, if the, if the investors are private, but the customers are government, you know, what makes something commercial? So I think my understanding of commercial space became much more nuanced, uh, having gone to China. Um, And I guess the second thing, again, and that's obviously not in the report. The second thing that's not in the report that was really useful for me is, you know, people are people everywhere. You know, these are folks, you know, the folks we met are, you know, they're struggling, they're excited, they're nervous. Um, They are, you know, they want to impress their investors, just the same as as, as the site visits we do in the United States. So that was really interesting for me. And last but not least, I got a chance to hang out with my colleagues, Irina and Shirley. And it was really, you know, we work in the same office and we hardly ever talk to each other. But in China, we kind of hung out and they took me to really awesome places to eat and to visit. And that was a lot of fun. I had a, I had a huge amount of fun working on the project.
2: Um, I think personally for me, the, the, I mean, this was my first major um, China s related project that I did for Stippy. And I just realized how much misinformation there was that we had about China. Because when we went, when we first started studying this, um, this whole entire sector, we, you know, relied on American media and American or English based resources, but, you know, quickly realized that there was very little information and a lot of the information seemed like conjecture. And then you see this whole different thing come out when you start um, reading in Chinese, or you start looking at primary source documents, um, and also interviewing the companies, you see that um, there's definitely a a huge language and cultural barrier um, for the Chinese in a, uh, innovation ecosystem. And I don't think it exists solely for uh, commercial space. I think it exists, you know, for AI, for many other technologies, where, you know, in the West, or in English-based media, you know, it seems like we don't know what China's doing and they're doing, it seems like they're, you know, leading or they're doing a lot or they're ahead. Um, and then when you read in the Chinese media, you get a better sense of what reality actually is and you get a better sense of what their challenges and their strengths are. So I think that was the most, you know, the most unexpected thing I discovered from this project is that English, the uh, language and cultural barrier with English based media and then Chinese based media Um the other thing is like, yes, going to China was great. Like we spent um, I spent three weeks um, basically traveling around and we went to like six different cities um, to visit all of these companies. Uh, and you realize, you know, these companies and they were so um, welcoming to talk to us, which was very fascinating because, you know, we're just American research company. And it's like they, they've never heard of us. They don't know who we are. And they're like, yeah, we're really excited about this and we're really impressed that an american company even knows our name so they don't realize the reach they have or how much they're talked about in the media right now i would say outside of china um, which was all very great
0: so my uh, final question uh, to you is uh, is there any follow-up to the study that you plan to do or do you see any merit uh, in having a rolling framework you know like you have the Space Industry Association and many other uh, uh, you know groups that are in the U.S. that are trying to constantly monitor uh, the U.S. Uh, space industry and the state of the space economy in both in the U.S. and there's also European ones as well. Um, and you know, given that there's so much uh, lack of information and even misinformation on the state of the Chinese industry, I wonder you know if uh, this exercise should be a uh, have a rolling framework where every year numbers could be updated. And given that, uh, you know, an institution like STPI could do this, then there's a lot of credibility to it. And people also don't need to pay $5,000 to access that report.
1: Yes, our reports are free. Um, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is such a fast moving sector. I already feel that our report is kind of getting dated because it's a year old now. Uh, and it would be useful to update it. Also useful to do would be uh, better insights into workforce uh, issues. So, you know, I think we did answer. We did try to learn some things about the kind of folks uh, that are being hired. Uh, I think it would be helpful to better understand um, some of the workforce constraints as the commercial, the emerging space sector f- uh, faces, um, the the financing um Ecosystem, you know, who's 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 funding these companies? Where are these funders coming from? What are the amounts of funds? Uh, you know, we have obviously got some insights in there in the report, but again, it's 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 changing quickly. Uh, one thing that we heard in one of the discussions I had at the IAC was um, uh, if 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 the companies, so, so you know, and this is something that's international. Companies tend to exaggerate the, the revenue downturn, revenue streams, and such. And so, one of the folks I spoke to said that you know VC may dry up if we don't start producing results and exits and such. So, it would really be important to see if the exits are are happening, if the companies are delivering as promised. And so, yeah, doing this on a on an ongoing basis would a good thing, uh, would be a good thing. But I'm not sure at this point if uh, we are doing it. I hope. I hope somebody does <laughs> maybe
0: even us All right so uh, Irina and uh, Bhavya I uh, really thank you for spending 2 hours uh, of your time you know having this uh, long conversation I think this is one of the most uh, insightful conversations that uh, uh, that I've had uh, in on understanding in China and I guess uh, you saved me a lot of time and uh, possibly also a lot of money in understanding uh, China in that sense and also I guess the listeners so I would love to like, you know, have this conversation if you're doing follow-up studies on other ecosystems as well. So, uh, and you know, possibly even, even an in, in the Indian ecosystem, if you did uh, a study on that and uh, had uh, insights there, you know, it may be very interesting to see what you saw through, through your lens and then uh, have a conversation on that as well. So thank you very much again for appearing on the show and uh, I wish you both uh, the best of luck for the future.
1: Well, thank you for inviting us. It was an absolute honor. We really enjoyed the discussion and uh, and we would love to do such a study on the Indian space ecosystem. So keep us posted on that if you see one that
2: we could help with. Uh, thanks again. Thank you so much. This was absolutely really great to disseminate all of this information.